Colossians. We'll read a few verses here. This is actually the third message that I have been, uh, where we've been looking at the book of Colossians. So I just want to read a few verses here as reminders and then end off with the section we'll be dealing with today. But we'll just start in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. For He, that is God, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. And then if you skip over to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And then just the last little phrase in chapter 3, verse 11. Christ is all and in all. For the Christian, everything that we need for our salvation is found in Christ. For every believer, in every situation, Christ is all and in all. And then skip down to verse 18 because this is the section we'll look at today. Chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. So, amen, that's, that's the section we're going to look at. Actually, we won't get through all that today. Paul wrote this letter in about 60 A.D., from prison. And he was writing to a group of Christians in this city of Colossa that, from what we can tell from this letter, were doing quite well. But the problem was there were some false teachers who were trying to bring in various heresies which would, in one way or another, deny the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. It seems that this was mostly being done by teachers who were presenting an early form of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism got really big later on in the second century, but this seems to be an early form of it. And they, these Gnostics, emphasized a higher secret knowledge and also put forth the idea that matter or the material realm was evil. God would not associate with matter because he was all good and matter was evil. So they speculated about there being these, these emanations from God, these kind of outshootings from God 
that the further out from God you got, the closer you could get to matter. But he could interact at least indirectly with matter through these emanations. I know that sounds weird, but there's been a lot of weird things that have been presented throughout the centuries. This was an early weirdness. And angels were actually uh, a form of such emanations. So this type of thinking, this Gnosticism, was being mixed in with Jewish rituals and ceremonies and teaching. And this is what the problem was uh, here with some of these uh, false teachers, which Paul was dealing with. We looked at that a little bit last week. You can see how some of these things that these false teachers were mentioning uh, would affect the church in an adverse way. They emphasized persuasive arguments related to wisdom and knowledge, but it wasn't from the scriptures, you see. And they held a form of ceremonialism and a form of mysticism and angel worship that were all contrary to uh, the scriptures. And one form of Gnosticism, now this is kind of interesting because it shows how you can take a teaching and go totally different ways with it. Uh, One form of Gnosticism emphasized self-abasement and severe treatment of the body because the body was material and therefore evil. Another form said that since the body was corrupted anyway, you could just go ahead and live any way you wanted to, just live a life of wanton pleasure because it's evil anyway. So just it seemed like polar extremes from a... Uh, an initial wrong teaching in, in one area. Well, the great issue for Paul was that these false teachers were saying that Christ was not enough for full salvation. You need some great wisdom or philosophy besides Christ. You need to f- perform some religious acts or ceremonies in addition to trusting Christ. You need to have some mystical experience, uh, something, some tingling, you know, uh, some form of worship. Uh, Sometimes it involved worship of these angelic emanations from God. Now, to all that, Paul said, No, Christ is all and in all. He's enough for every Christian, any time, any place. We pointed out, I think, last week that this book can be roughly divided into two parts or two sections. The first two chapters which lay out the great doctrinal teachings concerning the preeminence and full sufficiency of Christ, and the last two chapters, which focus on practical applications of these truths to the Christian life. For Paul, in every one of his letters, you see this truth that doctrinal teaching always has practical application. He never just presented doctrine. It was always with the, with the intention of showing how this is to change your life. So it always had practical a- a- application. Right thinking brings forth right living. So that's what you have in these last two chapters, the right living aspect, and that's what we're zeroing in on here this morning, one of those areas. Last week we looked at some of the practical applications for how the individual Christian should view his life, just as a personal life, uh, and also how the sufficiency of Christ should affect our relationships in the church. Today, we want to begin at least to see what Paul has to say about how Christ's sufficiency and our sufficiency in him applies to the family. 
I had hoped to look at this whole section that we read here, verses 18 through 21, but the message got too long. So we're just going to deal with husbands and wives this morning, just husbands and wives, just the first couple verses. But since it is Mother's Day, I did want to say something to the the mothers here. Uh, Actually, this was something I heard on the radio a couple days ago, and it seemed right and good, and I thought I'd just share it this morning. Though the words that I speak here from the pulpit are important for the children, and I hope they all listen, I think it's also true, and this is what I heard on the radio, that an ounce of mother is worth a pound of pastor. (laughs) That's to be an encouragement to you all to press on to the high calling that God has given you. No one else can do what you've been called to do. So, and children, just be so thankful for a mom that wants to lead you into the things of God and teach you about how to live for Christ. That's such a gift. So, for Mother's Day, children, just give them a big, give that mom a big hug. At least a big hug. Well, anyway, back to husbands and wives. This Gnostic false teaching, which was being put forth, would have had a terrible effect upon the marriages and families of of the Christian community. If the church went that ascetic route, you know, where they thought that matter was evil, stay away from it. If they went that route, marriage and family would have been viewed as an inferior or even evil way of living. If the church went the other, the self-indulgent route, marriage and family would have suffered horribly through sin. Just sinful self, you know, self-indulgence and selfish attitudes. But a correct understanding of God's will in Christ sets marriage and family on the right foundation. The foundation of the first two chapters is important, you see, for what Paul says here in verses 18 and 19. It's worth noting also that this letter was written before Ephesians. Even though in the Bible it comes after Ephesians, it's actually written before Ephesians. And so Paul expands on what he says here concerning marriage and family in verses 5 and 6 of Ephesians. In both letters, Paul is describing the spirit-filled Christian home, which is radically different than what marriage is like apart from Christ. In both letters, Paul describes relationships in the church before he deals with family relationships. And I think that's very significant. If we get relationships right in the church and learn how to function in love and submission here, 
we will have learned to practice some of the most basic ways of living necessary for a good marriage. This is the training ground. So let's start by looking what uh, Paul has to say here about the husband and wife relationship. I'll just read it again. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. So first, Paul deals with the basic way the wife is to relate to her husband. And he uses a word here that's not very popular and doesn't seem very positive in our present society. Subjection. Be subject to your husbands. Like I say, this is, this is a t- almost taboo word today. But Paul uses it and he qualifies it. Be subject to the Lord as is, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Subjection as the world understands it is far different than what it means in the Christian life. It's not having someone lord over you. In fact, I'll say this. Might not be right about this, but I'm not even sure that non-Christian married couples need to be instructed along this line because it will be misused because they don't understand proper subjection. They, t- they take their cue from how the world does it and it's not right. So I'm not sure that that's the needed instruction for a non-Christian married couple. It'll be misunderstood and misused and it has sadly been misused often down through the centuries. But it's also good to note that this teaching on subjection that has to do with married couples is just that. It's a teaching related to married couples, Christian married couples. It's not a teaching for the business world or for politics, for example. So we need to keep keep zeroed in on what Paul says here and not try to uh, extrapolate it out into many other areas. Besides all this, it's good to remember that it takes supernatural power, power of God, power of the Holy Spirit, to properly live out a Christian marriage. That's why it's not going to work rightly without knowing Christ. It'll get all distorted. But for the Christian who understands that both men and women are equal in dignity and value and glory and understands that the Spirit-filled life, their new life in Christ, is to be a reversal of the fall. The Christian marriage, the Christian life is to be a reversal of the fall where humanity sought independence from God and turned to selfishness. Things are different once you realize what God is doing for you and has done for you in Christ. In Christ, we're radically changed from a propensity towards selfishness 
to a propensity towards selflessness. And that makes all the difference. Our new life in Christ will bear witness to his triumph over all things, specifically the thoughts and actions between a Christian husband and wife should show forth the new creation that he has begun. God has begun a new creation here on earth. And he begins it with people that become Christians. And when those Christians become married, that's just a further extension of that new creation that he has made here on earth. The wives submission and the husband's love are to be characterized by the basic virtues that he brought out earlier in this chapter related to the church. Let's just look at those. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Now this is, this is how we're to understand Christian marriage, this thing of love and submission. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness. Now think about this for um, the marriage situation. Humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive one another. So, 14, did I not read that? Uh, Yeah, right, better read 14. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So, that's, that's the virtues, that's the things that God has put in our lives to make a marriage what it should be. Sadly, when we look out into this fallen world, and look at the marriage relationships, they're often characterized by the vices that are mentioned up above in verses 5 through 9. Things like immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to adultery. Idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God has come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. You're not walking in there anymore because you don't live in that realm anymore. But now you also put them all aside. Anger. Now these are the things you see that are put aside by the Christian. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from the mouth. Do not lie to one another. See, those are the things that are not to be there in the Christian Christian's life and the Christian marriage. For the Christian, these ways of living have been put aside. They've been put to death. They were part of what you were before you became a Christian, before you came to Christ. But now for the Christian, Christ is all and in all. You put on the new person that you are in Christ. You, you clothe yourself with Christ. That's the idea of put on. You clothe yourself with Christ. You be what you are in Christ, what he's made you to be in Christ. When Paul speaks of subjection related to the wife, he's speaking of a respectful submission. A respectful submission and service rendered voluntarily from the heart. 
He's not talking about a slavish submission or a coerced submission or a grudging submission or a cowering submission or a cringing submission. Rather, he's speaking of a free, glad, joyful submission like the church has toward Christ. In a Christian marriage, it's actually this submission is, a, is it's love responding to love. The love the wife has received in Christ and the love she receives from her husband make all the difference in the world as far as what this thing of submission is all about. So this subjection that is spoken of here is not a demeaning or a detrimental thing to the wife. Though the wife recognizes the position of her husband as head of the household, she also recognizes that her and her husband are co-disciples of Christ. She recognizes that God is both both for the husband and wife in equal measure, even though their roles in the marriage and family may be different. Just as Christ's role here on earth was one of subjection to the Father, now don't miss this because this is a really important principle, just as his role here on earth was one of subjection to the will of the Father, even though he was totally equal with the Father, you see, he was still in subjection to the Father. So it is with, Christ, with the wife's subjection to her husband. She's equal with him, but in subjection to him. The only difference is that our, our subjection to Christ is absolute. And that's not the case in marriage. It's only as it is fitting in the Lord. The relationship of the husband and wife in a Christian marriage should actually mirror the relationships in the Trinity in three ways. Equal, different, and one. Equal in worth, different in role, one in spirit. Now let me just say at this point that the roles of husband and wife are somewhat cultural. And I would emphasize the word somewhat. They're somewhat cultural. First century roles for men and women in marriage are different than 21st century roles. In the culture of Paul's time, husbands, parents, and slave owners had almost absolute control over their wives, children, and slaves. So so what Paul presents here, the idea of husbands loving their wives and not being embittered against them and fathers not exasperating their children so that they might not lose heart and masters granting their slaves justice and fairness was a radical departure from the way things usually were back then. Just, Just notice the three groups that had total cultural control, husbands, parents, and slave owners, are equally admonished by Paul in their responsibility before God. They weren't just loose cannons doing what they wanted to do. Paul says you have a responsibility toward God. So I think these were quite amazing words in the first century culture. 
And these things have changed the cultures wherever they've been applied through the centuries. Just these basic teachings here. Of course, how a Christian home should function is determined by the Lord, not by prevailing values of the surrounding surrounding culture. But some accommodations to the prevailing culture are usually necessary. Just for example, most of the marriages Paul was thinking of as he wrote to the Colossians here, as he wrote these things about marriage, most of these marriages were probably arranged marriages. Something that we currently frown upon in America. But even in the world today, some Christians have their marriages arranged by their parents. Uh, 20 or 30 years ago, we had a family from India, a brother G. John, some of you would remember way back then, and his wife and children stayed with us. Well, he, his marriage was arranged by his parents. And we, you know, they, they had, for all we could tell, a really fine marriage. Actually, the idea that he put forth to us was they did not fall in love and get married. They got married and learned to love and serve one another. Their their marriage was arranged, but God worked in their hearts and they learned to love and serve one another. In a Christian arranged marriage situation, I think these basic truths of subjection to the husband and the husband love their wives would be very important. But they're very important in marriages that aren't arranged also. I just bring bring this up to show that the way we apply these verses may change some related to time and place. But I do want to make it clear that I'm not saying that marriage roles are entirely cultural. For instance, just as a broad example here, the way God has designed our bodies as male and female will partly determine our roles in marriage. That really should be obvious. I mean, as a husband, I cannot carry the baby in the womb nor can I nurse the baby after it's born. Now, I know, sadly, some men are trying to do strange things with their bodies these days. But that's not what God wants, and and we have to respect the way God has designed our bodies. In general, you can say that the way God made men is more appropriate for protecting and providing for the family while the woman's makeup is more conducive to the responsibility of caring for children. Though, of course, there's some overlap in these roles. You know, some of it's cultural, some of it's not. Even some of, the, some of the, this area of, of roles in the family uh, and husband and wife changes a bit when you move from from an agrarian society to an industrial or technological society. Just some of those things have to be 
tweaked a little bit. But the question is, so what really is unchanging in all this? What is the right way for every Christian marriage in every culture? Well, one thing we can say is the life empowered by the Holy Spirit is no longer me-focused. doesn't matter what culture you're in, it's no longer you as the center of everything. Paul is telling these former pagans here in Colossae that something new and radically different has happened to them. You are now new creatures in Christ, so display, display and model this in whatever culture you find yourself. Reverse the curse which came because of man's failure to trust in God. We're always to be doing that as Christians. Reversing the curse that came because of man's failure to trust in God. Now, I want to explain that a little bit. The fall and consequent curse brought a distortion of previous roles. It didn't totally change the roles in some areas, but it brought us a real distortion of roles. Instead of man being in a loving leadership relationship with his wife, he would now often seek to rule over her harshly in unkind ways. And the wife, instead of willing and joyful subjection to the husband's leadership, would now have a desire or impulse to act against her husband and try to dominate or manipulate the husband. In short, both of them, for both of them, selfishness would cloud the relationship. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 3. I just want to point out one part of one verse that's easy to misunderstand. But it is, I think, important to understand. Genesis chapter 3, 16. This is part of the curse that came upon mankind because of sin, because of turning from God, because of not trusting in God. Genesis three sixteen. To the woman he said, that is God, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now here's the verse. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is not a positive thing that God's saying here. This is a result of sin. And this little phrase, your desire shall be for your husband, I think the proper way to understand is that that is that you're going to try to be in authority over. You're going to try to control. You're going to try to... to usurp his place of authority, and yet it says he shall rule over you. He's not going to let that happen. He's going to make sure you're not like that. That's not, that's not a good thing the way it's being presented here. Now, the reason I say this, take that interpretation, is because if you look over to chapter 4, verse 7, we get an understanding of what this desire is, is talking about. Because this is Cain and Abel's situation here, and uh, Cain and Abel are not getting along. Cain is angry with his brother. God says, you've got to not be like that. That's sinful. You've got to change that attitude. But in verse 7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. There's that phrase. It's a very similar phrase as what we just read in uh, 
3.16. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. In other words, sin is going to try to control you. Don't let that happen. So I think that's the understanding we should have of this little phrase back in 16. Your desire shall be for your husband. You're going to try to control things. And he's not going to let you do that. He's going to harshly keep you from that, doing that. Prior to their sin, Adam and Eve had lived in perfect harmony. But after the fall, Eve was to have an inward urge, an impulse to oppose Adam and resist his leadership. And Adam would respond with a rule over her that came from his greater strength and aggressiveness, a forceful rule over her. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, I want to take just a moment here and have you use your imagination. And this is, this is imagination to, for the sake of an illustration. But I want to put us back in the garden before the fall and then after the fall. Okay, so before the fall, here's Adam out in the garden looking around. This is beautiful. This is so wonderful. Look at these flowers. Look at these trees. Look at this. Look at these orange things on this tree here. It's beautiful. Might trim that tree up a little bit sometime, but it's sure nice to be in the garden. Wife, dear wife, come here. Look at this beauty. You know, I tasted one of these little orange things a bit ago. And they have really great juice in them. Honey, would you take those and cut them and squeeze that stuff out and, and, and we'll drink some of it. And I know it's going to be really good. So he says, sure, hon. Glad to. She takes the orange, cuts it open, squeezes it out, brings some to her husband and they drink the orange juice. Oh, this is wonderful. This is really, really great. Thanks, hon. You know, Eve says to Adam, you know, I'm so glad you had this idea of, of this orange juice stuff. Adam says, that's a good name for this. We'll call this stuff orange juice. You're so smart, honey. That's before the fall. After the fall. Here's Adam. Oh, I'm tired of working in this field, cutting these weeds out from amongst the trees and flowers. I just stepped on a stinking thorn, and I'm hot and tired. Eve, come over here and get me some of these oranges and squeeze me out some juice. I am thirsty. No. Squeeze it out yourself. Cain and Abel have been going at it all day and I'm tired. Well, that's maybe a little bit of a humorous example of what I think is, was the reality before and after the fall. They went 
from selflessness to selfishness and all things changed because they turned away from God. And that's been a sad state of affairs throughout most of human history. But God in Christ has established a new humanity, you see, where the curse is beginning to be reversed. There is an undoing of the wife's resentful impulse against her husband and the husband's response of harsh rule over his, over his wife. This is what's, that's what we're reading about here. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And all of this is made doubly important in a Christian marriage because marriage lived as it was originally designed is supposed to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Paul doesn't bring that out here, but he does later on in Ephesians chapter 5. There in, in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul teaches concerning this relationship between Christ and the church that the husband is to be a model of loving, sacrificial leadership the way Christ was. And the wife is to model the glad submission offered freely by the church. Biblical leadership in the home is the husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like leadership, protection, and provision. And the godly husband is the one who leads his wife while seeing her as totally equal to himself in dignity and worth, a fellow heir of the grace of God. The grace of life. A Christian husband is not one who rules over his wife because he thinks he's superior to her or uses his position of power to dominate her. You can be sure that any, any exploitation or dehumanizing of the wife is not in accord with God's will for marriage. The authority that God gives in the home or in the church is never to be used for selfish purposes. And I just want to say something to the men here because I ran across this thought in one of the commentaries and it's pretty challenging. Maybe you've heard this before, but it really struck me. This writer said Adam had to give part of himself to get a bride. Christ had to give all. It was told in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that Christ gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. So, so men, husbands here, love your wives. But, I mean, you can't get any higher calling than this. Love your wives as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. We're to give ourselves up for our wives. Self given up for the wife. And ladies, biblical submission in the home has to do with the wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. 
it's never an absolute surrender of, of her will to the husband. Rather, it's more a disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and an inclination to follow his leadership. But again, in this, Christ is always her absolute authority, not her husband. She is subject to her husband, as is fitting in the Lord. It's your duty. It's also defined by what it means to be a Christian. Is this really a Christian thing? As is fitting in the Lord. It never includes following her husband into sin, but even when she must stand against some sinful behavior of her husband, she can still do it in a spirit of submission. It takes the grace of God, but the whole Christian marriage takes the grace of God. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake that sin and lead the family in righteousness. So, I'm about to close here. Ultimately, Christian marriage comes down to this. The wife's respectful submission to her husband means she gives herself up to him. And the husband's loving headship over his wife means he gives himself up for her. So in practice, respectful submission and loving authority turn out to be two aspects of essentially the same thing. Selfless self-giving. That's, that's, the, that's the common deni- denominator on both sides of the equation. Selfless self-giving. As I said earlier, this type of marriage is supernatural. That does not mean that it's automatic or easy. You're still going to have to deal and battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil daily. So it's not automatic and evilly, or easy, but saying that it's supernatural means that God has the power there for you in Christ to live this way. It should go without saying that even the best of Christian marriages, in every, even the best ones, there will be failures and faults. So there will be plenty of opportunity to daily put into, to put on, to clothe yourself with a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Daily, it's going to be a daily thing. Well, let me close by saying that the Christian home, where the grace of God is lived out, on a daily basis is a reflection of our love to God and a powerful witness for the truth. Powerful witness out into a confused and hurting lost world. It's, it's one of the main ways that we let our light shine in a dark world. In a world that's rapidly losing its understanding of what it means to be male and female and also, just what marriage is supposed to be. We're, 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 we're losing this 100 miles an hour here in America. But by the grace of God, Christians can stand out in the midst of all that. 
your light can shine in the darkness because of what Christ has done in your heart. And then when he brings two Christians together, there'll be a real difference because of who you are in Christ. If Christ is all and in all, there'll be a radical difference between that marriage and one where Christ is not considered at all. Well, we'll stop there and take up this thing of how Christ being all and in all affects the relationship between children and parents next time, Lord willing. Let's pray.